Have you ever watched uh, one of those like Ken Burns style documentaries about like the Civil War, the American Revolution, or, or maybe the 19th or 20th century in America? Has anyone ever watched those and then maybe, or maybe like read a biography or a history book and that? You know, one of the things I like about those, especially the documentaries, They'll get like a narrator or an actor to read like old letters that were written at the time, especially the Civil War documentaries. You get letters from soldiers from the battlefield or, or from their sweethearts back home sending them to them. And, and those are really entertaining. I, and I think they're entertaining because they really draw us in because on the one hand, they're very familiar to us. You know, if you grew up in America and you know a bit about the history, you may even know the towns they're talking about. You know, I grew up in Oklahoma. Very rarely did I know the towns anyone was talking about when we were talking about Civil War history or anything earlier. Uh, but over here, you know, we have several places that get mentioned in history books. I was reading a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, and it kept mentioning places very close to here because Grant's armies came right through this area. So it's, it's, very, and it's very familiar in that sense. On the other hand, it's very foreign to us. Maybe you've heard it said that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. Well, that's true. And, and so we see that, you know, these letters kind of have a nice balance between the familiar and the foreign, and they just really draw us in that way. You know, they talk about romance or relationships, and we go, ooh, that draws us in. But then they talk about it in kind of a strange way that's unfamiliar to us, and that also draws us in because we're like, what is going on? Why would they use those words? And, and so we really can, can enjoy those and understand them. Now, the, the challenge for us, especially if you're a new Christian or, or maybe you aren't a Christian, maybe you didn't grow up in church or grow up around church or around Christians, the challenge is when we read the letters in the New Testament, because they were written around 2,000 years ago. And so it can be very challenging, because although there's plenty that's foreign, it's from a long time ago in a faraway place, there's not too much that's familiar. And even if you're a Christian who, who's familiar with some of these words and characters and places, you still sometimes have a challenge reading these things. And I think a text like the one we read this morning can kind of feel like a lot of work, especially if you want it to be relevant at all to you today. Because you see in just chapter 118 through 210, Paul's giving kind of an autobiography. He, he's telling some events that happened, and he's naming multiple characters and using some strange language and mentioning strange relig religious rites. And so as we read it, we might struggle to see, one, what he's talking about, and two, how it's very relevant to us today at all. But I think as we read this text, not only, hopefully, will we get a better handle on the history and the story that's going on, I hope that we see that it is immensely relevant for us today because the one thing that we want to be clear, the, the one main takeaway that I hope you all leave this room thinking about is the fact that there is only one true gospel that was preached among the apostles. There is only one true gospel. And so we see that as we look at this text. Look at verse 18. We start right here with Paul saying, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now last week, we looked at Paul's calling. And he says that although he had once been a Pharisaical Jew that was opposed to the new Christian church, these new followers of Jesus, we see that after that, he says he goes to Arabia and spends some time there. And then after a while, presumably he went there to, to, to 
pray, to, to search the scriptures, to, to meditate on them, and, and kind of figure all this out. Because in his calling, he had a radical change. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him and set him on a mission, ironically, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This stardent Jewish follower to now become an apostle to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. So he goes to Arabia and spends some time there, and then we hear, he says, that he goes to Damascus, which is the place he was on his way to to persecute and destroy the church. He goes back there, and instead, he is preaching and teaching the gospel that he once tried to destroy. And now in verse 18, he says, after three years from that calling, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, it's important to note this. You might not think it is, but if you try to reconcile the story in Galatians to the story in Acts and understand what's actually going on here, you need to note what after three years might mean. Now, maybe you're like me, and if you were to use the phrase after three years, you would mean something like from today, 36 months later, three, three times 12 months, right? Now, that's not necessarily what Paul means. The way that they reckon time in Paul's day and in the day of Jesus and even before it, but in the days of the Old Testament, was often inclusive. Now, what that means is this. So let's say we say after three years. This year is 2023, then we have 2024, then we have 2025. Now, 2025 is not 36 months from now, but that very well might be what we mean by the phrase after three years if we meet it in the same way that Paul does. Let me give you another example from the Bible that will be pretty easy to see. Jesus was, died, Jesus was crucified on the first day. He was buried and, and was in the grave on the second day, and he was raised on Sunday, the third day. Now, Jesus repeatedly says he will raise after three days. And some skeptics today will go back to the scripture and say, see, it's all messed up. Jesus didn't, Jesus wasn't in the grave three days. But that's not necessarily what Jesus meant by that phrase. He very well meant on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Paul could mean after three years, 36 months. He could also mean like 14 months, depending on how the time of year worked and what he intended. Now, you might be thinking, this is really imprecise. These, these ancient people are so difficult. But now, how many times have you been talking to one and said, you know, just the other day, and you didn't mean just the other day. You meant like many days ago, months ago, even sometimes years ago, depending on how long you've been alive. You may mean decades ago when you say just the other day. So we don't always use time precisely either. Now, this is important because it means that Paul's visit to Jerusalem could very well have not been as long as we think, which might make sense of why probably this first visit to Jerusalem after becoming a follower of Jesus was what we see in Acts chapter 9. So if you want to go look at that later, you can. So he goes to Cephas. To visit Cephas is why he goes there the first time. Now, who's Cephas? Well, if you know the disciple Peter, he actually was originally named Simon. And, his, and Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock. Okay? Now, that's a pretty cool name. I don't know about you. I tell the youth all the time when I say this, you know, rock. That's a good nickname. If, if God's going to give you a new name, rock's a pretty good one. But Peter meant rock. And so does Cephas. So sometimes when Paul refers to Peter in his letters, he calls him Cephas. I don't know why he picks one word over the other. It's not really clear because even in this, 
this letter, he uses both of them. So I don't know how you make sense of that. But he goes and spends 15 days in Peter's house as his, as his house guest. Now, I don't know about you, but as much as I love the scriptures and history and theology, I would love to just have been in the corner of that room for 15 days hearing what they talked about. You can only imagine. But, he says in verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, why is, why is Paul saying all this? Like, what is the relevance here? Paul is trying to walk a fine line. Because the false teachers in Galatia were accusing him of being considered an apostle, not because of his calling by Jesus, but because of being labeled that by some men. So the issue at stake was they said, no, 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 Paul's not a real apostle. You know that, right? There, there's, there's 12 apostles. They, they lived with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They're the real apostles. Paul didn't even know about Jesus, didn't even follow Jesus until after Jesus had already ascended to heaven. So, he's not a real apostle. He wasn't a real eyewitness. He didn't see all this stuff happen. He can't really teach you what Jesus taught. That was an issue at stake, questioning Paul's apostleship. So, Paul has to take great lengths in this autobiography to make clear that he did not get his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. But, at the same time, these false teachers were likely claiming, based on what we can read in Galatians, that they had connections to the Christians in Jerusalem. So what they were teaching was the true gospel. What they were teaching made sense of it all. And so he also wants to make clear that his gospel is the same as the apostles in Jerusalem. So on the one hand, he wants to give the apostles no credit for his gospel, but on the other hand, he wants to make clear that they affirmed his gospel. And so that's why he says, I only saw Peter, and I only saw James briefly. And he's not lying about any of that. And then he goes on in 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. What Paul is saying is after this brief 15 days in Jerusalem, he goes again and starts teaching and preaching just like he had been before just to a different place. And he says that many of the churches in Judea, which includes kind of the area around Jerusalem, where many of the Jewish Christians would have been, the most of them, he says that they still didn't know him in person. Most of them hadn't met him or had seen him in person. But they were saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They had heard about him, even if they hadn't met him in person. So Paul is making, making great lengths to make clear that people had, had decided after some time that Paul was genuine. His, his calling was genuine. His ministry was genuine. And you can understand why they may not have thought that at first. Maybe you in your life have, have known someone who, who came from a rough home or, or addiction or, or a difficult, difficult life they were living and then they were called by God. They were, they were converted. They, they were brought to Christ. They turned away from their old lives and embraced this new life in Christ. Yet, you weren't completely convinced just yet. Because you know where they were from, and you've seen many people just like them say they were following Jesus, and it didn't pan out very well, did it? And so you're kind of skeptical. Maybe, maybe you were that person to others. Maybe your life was 
in such bitter straits that when people saw that you were now claiming to be a Christian, they were pretty skeptical. You could see that people would look at Paul that way for quite some time. But after time, they saw his ministry, they heard about his preaching, and they became convinced. And notice this. In seeing what God had done in Paul, they did not give Paul glory. In verse 24, it says, And they glorified God because of me. When we are preaching the gospel, the true gospel, God should be the one who is glorified, not us. When the true gospel is preached, God receives glory. We don't. And it's in this context in which we can kind of see part of the reason that maybe people started believing Paul was a true believer, that he was a true follower, that he was truly preaching the true gospel. They gave him glory. They did not, sorry, they gave God glory. They did not give him glory. Now, in this context, preaching, I don't mean getting up on a stage and preaching on a Sunday necessarily. Just any time that we proclaim or speak or share the gospel to another person, when we tell them about the good news of Jesus, in that context, God should always receive the glory. It should be all about him, all about what he has done for us. Our response is just that, a response to what he has done and what has been said. And it's important to note that sometimes this is one of the ways we can find when the true gospel is not being preached. You may know of ministries that exist. You know, they've got their name, blank, blank ministries, and they go around. You may not even know what church they go to. Many of them don't go to church. They go around and they preach. You know what? They may even do good things. They may give money away to help people. Probably not, but they might. And they heal people. Probably not, but maybe. And they do all this ministry all over the place. And they might say, in the name of Jesus. And they may say that God should get the glory. But we all can tell very clearly who's getting the glory out of that ministry. And it doesn't have to be on that grand of a scale either. There are many times, even locally, even in your own communities, you might find people who are doing ministry for the sake of their own glory, for the sake of their own pocketbook, for the sake of their own reputation, for the sake of their own ego. And that's one of the ways I think we see the true gospel is not being preached. And if it is, that sadly something has been added to it or taken away from it, such that we receive the glory rather than God. That's not the true gospel. Now we move on and we see that Paul goes to Jerusalem a second time. Actually, yeah, a second time at this point. Verse 1, then after 14 years. Note, my rule about inclusive time, 14 years might be a little less than that, strictly speaking. Also, it's probably not from the last time he was in Jerusalem, but from his calling all the way back in the earlier chapter of chapter 1, earlier verses there. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run 
in vain. Now, what's going on here? He says he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Now, that 14 years probably puts this happening around 42, 44 A.D. That would have been about the same time as what happens in Acts chapter 11. If you would like to and you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, which means, I, I think it means it's your 44th book in the Bible, which is less helpful, I know. But it's just a few books away from Galatians, if you turn earlier. Acts chapter 11, looking at verses 27 through 30. Here, Luke writes, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now Saul here being Paul's other name, his Hebrew name, Shaul, Rabbi Shaul. Anyway, so here we have this story in which Paul and Barnabas had been in Antioch, and a prophet comes from Jerusalem to Antioch and gives a revelation that there's going to be a great famine. So the disciples in Antioch decide that they're going to collect an offering and send it to Jerusalem in order to assist them through this difficult time. And they send, as representatives, Barnabas and Paul to Jewish Christians. Barnabas was very well respected in the early church. In fact, if, 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 if we can believe the histories, Barnabas was probably more respected than Paul in the early church, which is kind of understandable since Barnabas was like the encouraging guy who kind of sat in the background a little bit and Paul was kind of the guy who'd come and yell at you. And so it's understandable that he might have been more popular at that time. So they go together and they take this relief to the elders in Jerusalem. Now, what Galatians tells us that Acts doesn't is he mentions that Titus goes along with him. Titus was not a Jewish Christian. Titus was a Gentile Christian. He was likely converted under the ministry of Paul. He was a faithful follower of Paul, followed him for years. And throughout Paul's letters, he just says the most glowing things about Titus. I mean, I know we talk about Paul and Timothy a lot, but it seems that Paul had just as good maybe in some ways even more, uh, more better, that's very Oklahoman of me, a lot more better, relationship with Titus than Timothy. And so we see here that Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem with Titus. What's the reason they went there? Because of a revelation. God is orchestrating these events. He's orchestrating the weather with the famine. He's orchestrating the prophecy with Agabus. He's orchestrating Paul and Barnabas and Titus going to Jerusalem. This is truly the Spirit of God at work. I know he's not making clear that the Spirit of doing this is doing this, but he makes clear that it is a revelation set before them that sends them to Jerusalem. Now, what he does while he's at Jerusalem is important. Antioch is a place that's going to create some tension in the early church. It was full of Gentile Christians. And so it created some tension around how the Gentile Christians are a part of the church. It's a big issue. It's actually probably the predominant issue 
in the earliest church? How do the Gentiles get in the family? Now, this is important. Because in Acts chapter 11, they go to send relief, but Paul sees this as an opportunity. He sees this as an opportunity to create some unity among the church. Because there's these tensions around the gospel that he's preaching. So what does he do? He says that he goes and he sets before them privately to those who seemed influential the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. Now, it's not clear to me at all that Paul really thinks he's preaching the wrong gospel. It's more that he wants to make sure that they know he's preaching the right gospel. And this is a good thing to do. It's a little savvy even. It's a good way to build the relationship here is to come to them and say, hey, I've, I've stayed in your house for 15 days we seem to be on good terms right now, but I just want to put before all three of you the pillars, James, Cephas, and John. I want to put before you my gospel that you might tell me that I'm not running in vain, that I'm not doing this ministry in vain, that I'm not preaching in vain. Now, it's interesting, he says in verse 3, this is so important to Paul's argument because the false teachers, part of what they were wanting to add to the gospel was circumcision, removing the male foreskin. That was a part of what was at, at stake here. This was a religious practice, a religious rite of the Jewish people that on the eighth day, the Jewish men were to be circumcised. And here, they're now required, they're saying, if you're going to become be a Gentile, you need to be circumcised. But it's so important that even Titus, he says in verse 3, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That's so important. If they're claiming they have the backing of Jerusalem, he says, I went to the most influential people in Jerusalem for the church, and they did not force Titus to get circumcised. They surely would have, wouldn't they? And so he says, in some, ex some extent, open-shut case. But he goes on. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is so important. Notice what he calls them, false brothers. Now he didn't hesitate to call the people in Galatia brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are a part of the family of God. But here he's calling them false brothers. What that means is they were in the church. People were considering them brothers. And not only that, but they looked like brothers. They wouldn't be called so otherwise. This is concerning for us in some ways because we have to be very wary of who is in our church in a way. Not that we all get paranoid. I don't know if you've ever spent time with people who are genuinely paranoid. It honestly can be quite terrifying. And, and I only know that because of ministry. Uh, but with that being said, not you guys. They're not here this morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so, he's not talking about people who are paranoid. But he's talking, uh, he's not trying to create a, a, a culture of paranoia. But he's saying these are false brothers. How do we know they're false? They're teaching false things and they're living falsely. That's what we see throughout Paul's letters. That's the two signs of false brothers. They, they, they have immorality, and false teaching. And those two things almost always run together. Now, they don't have to. You may be able to catch immorality before it leads to false teaching. You might be able to keep, uh, catch false teaching before it leads to immorality. Years later, groups like these false teachers in Galatia would become heretics called the Ebionites. 
And they would start out by saying, well, the gospel includes submitting to the law, submitting to the Torah, submitting to circumcision. And it wasn't long when they started thinking through their beliefs that then they undermined the cross of Jesus. Well, it's no longer a cross that's really meant to redeem us. It's really just to bring the Gentiles so they can observe the law too. And then they go further. Well, if, if the cross doesn't actually have that meaning, then he does not have to be fully God in order to redeem us. And the Ebionites actually denied the deity of Jesus. That's where immorality becomes false teaching and heresy. It can go the other way as well. And so we have to be very wary of this. This is what it looks like for false teachers to be in the church. And remember, they're not just false teachers. They're false brothers. They're false sisters. They look like we do in a lot of ways. But they are known by their fruit, what they produce, their teaching, their actions. Now this word, I love this. This is. Can we do a little Greek here for a minute? Let's look at verse 4. He says, they slipped in to spy out our freedom. Now, one of the uh, words for a pastor or an elder is overseer, right? And, and that word is, is, literally means overseer, oversight, one who has oversight. This word for slipped in to spy out the freedom is a word that means against sight. They, have, they are looking, but they're against you. So literally, they are the opposite of good leaders, of overseers. They are literally against seers. They are coming to view against them. And they see the, the freedom that they have in Christ Jesus, and they want to bring them back into slavery. Now, this slavery is important. When we read this today, we don't connect it to the whole Bible narrative most of the time. We just think of slavery as generic slavery. I mean, we may think of, again, American slavery. We might just think generically of being in bondage to something. But he's playing, again, on the story of Scripture. This slavery is not just slavery to anything. It's the kind of slavery that the Jewish people had in Egypt. So in the same way that this law isn't just law generically, but it's the Torah, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, so this slavery is slavery to Egypt, slavery in exile. See, at this time, the early church saw themselves very much, the, the Jewish people actually before Christ even came, were seeing themselves as still in slavery and in exile. Why? Because although they had been allowed to go back to the land, although they had been allowed to rebuild their temple, they weren't in charge. They were still the Roman government overseeing them. Practically, they were not thriving in the promised land like they had been promised. They were not under the kingship of Christ or of, of God in the way that they expected. And so here, many of them believed we're still in exile. We're still in slavery. We are not free. We are burdened by this. The promises given to Abraham have not been fulfilled. And that's when Jesus comes on the scene. And he makes clear it's not just slavery to Rome that you have a problem with. It's slavery to your self, to your own sin. That's why in, in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is named Jesus. Because he will save his people, what? From their sin. Not from their oppressors. Not from their, not from their neighbors. Not from the Gentiles. But from their sin. And so this is an important matter. That they are trying to bring them back into slavery. Paul doesn't see this simply as them trying to add rules and legalism on top of them. He sees them 
as taking away the very power of the gospel, the very thing the gospel does, which is unite a whole people to God, they are undermining that by saying, no, 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 it's so much nicer in Egypt. Haven't we heard that before? As they crossed the Red Sea, that's what, that the, that's what the Hebrew people said as they were in the wilderness, as they didn't have food. At least they fed us back there. And so in our own lives as Christians, we can be tempted to say, it was so much nicer before Christ came along. And if you think you've never done that, just remember how often we put on ourselves all of these rules to follow. Not only that, how often we put on ourselves a glorification of our past sins. I mean, sometimes I hear people, not necessarily formally, but they talk about their past life before they knew Jesus, almost with like an odd sense of pride. Like, you know, oh, we used to do this, and we got away with this, and oh, you know, oh, yeah, the good old days, whatever, you know. But now I'm, I'm a well-mannered husband and, and father and church member, and I show up. They put my name on the deacon list. I don't do anything, but they, there it is. And all's good. But that's not, that's not how we treat that. We don't glorify our Egypt days. We leave them behind us. And that's what Paul is afraid that these false teachers... In fact, he's not afraid. He knows that they're trying to drag the people back to Egypt, to bondage, to slavery. And we will see how this gets fleshed out later. But let us continue here. He says in verse 5 that they did not yield in submission to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Had Paul and had Barnabas yielded, had Titus yielded to these false teachers, had they yielded to the false teachers wanting Titus to be circumcised, then the gospel, the truth of it, would not have been preserved. The very core of it, that all people have been united not through the law, not through observing the law, not through circumcision or any religious rite, but through Jesus Christ, the person, the work that he has done for us. That is what unites us. And he's so fearful that if they distort that, that they're just going back to Egypt, to slavery. Now he says in verse 6, And from those who seemed to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. This is another sign of gospel preaching. When preaching the gospel, we shouldn't add anything extra. Now, I'm not saying you don't tell, I'm not saying you can't talk about other things at all. But when you change the core of the gospel, when you change the message, when you change what Christ did, when you change who Christ is, when you add or take away anything, you are distorting it to the point that it becomes inept, that it becomes powerless. It's like when you take a, a cat, or I'll use a lion, and you remove all its claws, or a shark and remove all its teeth. There's no power in it. Okay, there may be a little bit of power in it, but you see the point, right? That, that, that to take the gospel, and remove or add to it. To add a muzzle to it or to remove its teeth or its claws is to take away its power. There is no power in preaching a false gospel. There is none. The only power that lies there is manipulation and distortion. And that's the very thing they've done to the gospel here. They've distorted it. And Paul is saying that when he presented his gospel to the apostles, they didn't add a thing. 
He didn't get this gospel from them. They just affirmed the gospel that he preached. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's well summarized in one sense in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is in that, in that message that Paul would have us rely. Not in another one. Not in some distortion. Not in some, one that adds something to it. And it's not only the message that can't be distorted. We don't need to distort how we respond. When we invite people to respond to the gospel, we should not add to that. We should not require certain acts of piety, like praying specific prayers, like walking down specific aisles, like being baptized in specific rivers. None of that. The response to the gospel in Scripture is repent and believe. We see that as early in, in any place of Scripture as Jesus is preaching of the gospel. He says in Mark 1.15 that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he tells them to repent and believe for it is near. He doesn't say, perform this public religious act. Now that's not to say that we don't make our faith public with baptism. That doesn't mean it's not helpful to walk down an aisle and respond. That doesn't mean that it's not helpful to repent and believe through praying to God and speaking to him. But we cannot make those things test or boundary markers for whether someone who has given their life to Jesus or not. We cannot make those, we shouldn't make a religious test. We should simply ask people, have you repented of your sin and have you believed on Jesus for salvation? And we can ask more questions, we can talk more, but we don't add something to them like circumcision. We don't add something to them like, well, now you go observe the law. Now it's important to say, in some situations, now that you have believed, go live like Jesus. Yeah, you're going to live better. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And that's what Paul's going to argue in this letter. We don't need circumcision. We don't need the law. We need the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And that only comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing more. It only comes from asking for a response of repentance and belief and nothing more. And so we see in verse 7, on the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here Paul is saying... Instead of adding something to me, instead of saying, you know what, Paul, here's a few places you need to change this. Okay, you're emphasizing the resurrection too much. Downplay that. Uh, you mention the virgin birth more. People like that. You know what, whatever it is, they're not adding anything to them. They say, yeah, that sounds good. We affirm what you're preaching. And they actually say that Paul is preaching the same gospel. Notice, Paul is going to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and, and and Peter is going to the circumcised, the Jews. But they're not preaching a different gospel. They're preaching the same gospel. It is here in verse 7. They had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Not a different gospel. Not only that, it's the same spirit that is empowering them for this ministry. In verse 8, it says that the one who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. That, that verb, worked through, 
is kind of where we derive our word from the Greek, energy. Now, I don't think it's talking about like their physical energy, but it's saying they were empowered. They received power for their ministry. Both of them. From whom? The same person. The Spirit of God. Peter didn't need to preach circumcision or the law. And Paul didn't need to downplay the importance of following Jesus faithfully the rest of your life. They came together and said, no, 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 the same gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, responded with repentance and belief, lifelong repentance and belief, trusting that message and the Spirit of God which empowers it. That's what keeps us together. That's the unity that we have. When, the, when preaching the gospel... Christian fellowship should flourish. Christian unity should flourish. Christian community and partnership should flourish. Such that when we preach the same gospel, even though we disagree on baptism or any number of things, if we preach the same gospel as the Methodist church down the street, we are in fellowship with them. Not on a Sunday morning necessarily, but as we live our lives in this community. You know what? I have no qualms. If someone comes to this church and says, man, I really, you know, I like that y'all preach the gospel, but you know, I grew up Methodist, whatever. It's kind of uncomfortable. I have no problem saying, go visit this Methodist church that preaches the same gospel we do. Now, y'all know that I'm a pretty strong Baptist, though I did not grow up that way. Nothing's more dangerous than a convert. I don't know if y'all know that. I'm a Baptist convert, and so I'm, I'm going to harp on it a little bit. But I have no problem if someone says, I'm going to struggle to worship here because of the differences but I like that you preach the gospel. I have no problem saying go to a church that you can worship in that's like the, that, that makes you comfortable there, not because it's about your feelings, but because of where, how you've grown up and how you need, that preaches the same gospel. I have no problem telling someone that because you know what? It's not a Baptist heaven. And so looking at verse 9 and 10, they were extended the right hand of fellowship that he was to go to the Gentiles and Peter to the circumcised. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now this verse can be taken way out of context. What's the context of this verse? Well, we know in verse 2 that the whole reason Paul was there was because of a revelation. And looking at Acts chapter 11, it was because they were sending finances from the Gentile Christians to Jerusalem, as they were going through these difficult times, as they were undergoing persecution, poverty, and famine. And we know from Paul's later letters, Galatians is a very early letter of his, we know from his later letters that he was collecting offerings in all the Gentile churches for Jerusalem. So what is verse 10 talking about? Although we should remember all the poor, in verse 10, that's not what it's speaking about. It's specifically speaking about you came to us with this offering today. We're going to send you back to the Gentiles. That's what you should be doing, Paul. That is who you're called to. But as you do it, do not forget about us. We are struggling here. Our people are, being, are, 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 are without food. Our people are sick. They are dying here in the streets. Don't forget about us. We're happy for you to go and serve others, but don't forget about us. Now, I know it's hard to believe that at one time, people would send missionaries and then say, send us money back. That's usually not what we do with missionaries, is it? We're in one of the wealthiest countries, one of the wealthiest nations that's ever existed in all of history. So our practice has always been when missionaries go over, we are sending them money. Or we are sending uh, not just missionaries, but locals their money to support their ministry. But there is 
there may be very well a day and age that's coming. I don't know if you all know this. There are already people who get sent from places like China to be missionaries in the United States. Now, you may not believe that, but I've met some of them. We are very well reaching a day and age where the United States might be so post-Christian that we have people from all around the world sending missionaries to us. And because of our wealth, it would not be surprising if some of them, missionaries from Africa per se, were to come here and say, yeah, you go over there and serve in the United States, but collect money to send back to us. If you're not going to be here supporting us, if you're not going to be here doing that, help us out. We very well may see a day and age where that is exactly what happens. Throughout this passage, Paul is telling his story. He's trying to make clear his story because he doesn't want anyone to, to get a misconception of what happened. And it's all because of this, that there is only one true gospel that was preached among the apostles. It's the same gospel preached by Peter as preached by Paul. It is the same spirit that has empowered Peter for his ministry that has empowered Paul. And you know what, First Baptist Alcoa, the same spirit that empowers our gospel ministry is the same one that empowers every true gospel ministry in this country and in this world today. And that means whether the church has five people or 5,000, it is the same spirit of God that is empowering us to see lost people saved, to see disciples made. And if we are to get all teary-eyed and worried about the fact that we have less people than that church over there, or get excited about the fact that we have more people than the church over there, then we have completely and utterly lost the point. It's all about the Spirit of God that is moving and working in our midst. Our, our, our calling is to be faithful. This last week I was watching a brief documentary on YouTube about a guy named Pastor Vaughn. Pastor Vaughn was a youth pastor just south of where Calvary Chapel and all that started. And funny enough, he had such an impact that many missionaries came out of his youth ministry. Many youth pastors and pastors came out of his ministry. I mean, he served in youth ministry, and they told stories about him. They said he was a skinny, funny-looking guy who would walk up there, and, and he had no funny stories. He had no good jokes. He would just preach the Bible. And to hear him tell it, he said, for years I would, I would do the youth pastor thing and tell encouraging stories. And finally I kind of got on to the kids and were like, Bring, y'all should be bringing your Bibles and reading your Bibles. And I guess one of the girls told him, well, maybe you should try teaching from it sometime. And that changed everything for him. And he said, I stopped with the gimmicks. I stopped with the games. I just started preaching the Bible. And he said, the craziest thing happened. I thought I was going to lose all of these kids. And he had over seven, 800 kids on a Wednesday night at his youth group. He had a church of about 200 and they fought about whether they should let these kids in. Should we let them come in in their bathing suits with the sand and the water? All this, and, and we have to deal with seven or 800 people in our buildings. But telling this story, telling this story, he said that they had people sending him and his kids to different churches to tell what was happening at their church back home. And, and, and he said that they were always wanting to know what the secret was. What's the secret? How did you do it? How do we get all these kids to come to our church like that? And he said, I could have at that moment wrote a book and made a whole lot of money. He said, but I had to tell them there's no secret. He said, I went to a, a meeting of Baptists. He was a Baptist guy. And he said, they all said, we want to know how to do what you did. And he said, there, you've already got it wrong. It's not what we do. It's what the Spirit of God does. And we're just there to be faithful and do the work. Not in order to produce the result, but to see what God will do when we 
get out of the way and preach his worth faithfully. Let us pray.